want to go back there and learn about Jesus? The rest of us are going to stay here and look into God's Word together. We're in 1 Peter chapter 5. We continue this book. We are going to finish it next week, actually. Um, Dan will close it out. I hope that it's been helpful for you. He wrote the letter to people like us to give us hope uh, as believers in Jesus in a world where that's not the case for most people, where you're going to receive opposition. So today's passage contributes to the foundation of our hope. So let's read the text, and then we'll pray for the Spirit to give us understanding. We're going to read 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. We ask for your grace today, Lord, by uh, giving us that heart to, to receive what you're saying willingly, yielding to it. You have, you have mercy for us here in this text. You have a, an expression of your grace to us through your construction of the church, through leadership. And we want that leadership to reflect yours. We want to experience that grace through people. So show us today, Lord, again, your mercies, your kindness to us through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. I've mentioned the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, before. I hope that's a book that you have. I don't know if it's still the most popular book outside the Bible anymore, but it was at one time. It's got two parts. Part one is the journey of a man named Christian through the world, through all the trials and temptations of the world, and all the way to the river of death, which he crosses over until he gets to the celestial city, which is heaven. But that's the end of part one. Part two is... His wife, Christina, or Christiana, and her children, and what and then their journey. And in their journey, they, they set out and they go through a lot of the same places that Christian went through. They go through Vanity Fair, they go through Doubting Castle, and they meet with trials, they meet with temptations along the way too. But they have one advantage that wasn't in part one, that wasn't in the story of Christian. They have a helper with them. And his name is Mr. Greatheart. And Bunyan describes Mr. Greatheart as a manservant who was ordered to be their guardian and to guide them on the way. And so he does. He walks with them through the whole journey. And uh, 
brings uh, Christiana right up to the river of death, and she crosses over, goes into the celestial city. But he remains behind, and he stays with her children. Here's what Bunyan intended to communicate with that picture of Christina and her children, or Christiana and the, and the children, and Mr. Greatheart. She and her children represent the church. Mr. Greatheart represents pastors. Those manservants, those guides that God has given to his church to lead it, to, to guide them into all things, to be there in trials and temptations, to, to give spiritual help along the way, being a, an assistant, if you will, on the journey to heaven. That's what pastors are supposed to be. Peter is talking about those guys in our passage. He says, I exhort the elders among you to shepherd the flock of God. Elders shepherd or pastor the church. They are spiritual guardians to help believers on their way to the celestial city. And they are to do this on behalf of the chief shepherd, who's mentioned here. That's Jesus the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. This passage describes his charge to those men who shepherd on his behalf. Now, I know that right now, many of you could mentally check out and say, well, I'm not a pastor, so this passage doesn't really have anything to do with me. This is me talking to Dan and, you know, Todd eventually and but it doesn't have anything to do with me. Well, it does apply to you because you're the direct beneficiaries of what Peter is saying to the elders. Um, This is an expression of God's love for you. God gives you pastors or shepherds to care for you on his behalf. So it should encourage you, I hope it will encourage you, uh, the amount of attention that he gives to those guys to make sure that they're doing a good job of it the one that he would want to have done. So this gives us another opportunity to see the the love of God, the care of God for you, in that he wants you to have a Mr. Greatheart to walk through life with you. Um, It also addresses other groups, as we'll see, not just the pastors. So before we address each group, and the three groups are the elders, and we'll spend most of our time on them. And then after that, he speaks to the younger ones, And we'll have something to say to you younger ones. And then he speaks to everybody at the end. So he's talking to the church here. So before we address each group, let's just start with an observation, uh, which is this, which is that Christians are expected to be in local churches. (laughs) Christians are expected to be in local churches. Uh, You might remember back in chapter 1 that Peter addressed his letter to the elect exiles of the dispersion, that is, Christians in all sorts of cities, and he listed those cities and regions. So he wrote it to people who know themselves to be exiles, who know that this world is not our home. We desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one, the writer of Hebrews says. So we're passing through, this isn't our home, we're exiles. So he writes the letter to Christians, and then we write, they come to chapter 5, verse 1, and Peter says, I exhort the elders among you, which means he expects there to be elders among them. He expects there to be those who exercise oversight of the flock of God. 
This is the office of elder or pastor that Paul wrote to Timothy about when he said, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. These are the leaders that Paul and Barnabas appointed in every church on their first missionary journey in Acts chapter 14. So Peter's not just writing to individuals. He's writing to churches. That's where he expects the elect exiles to be. Christians belong in local churches. I think that needs to be said over and over again in our current cultural context because our society is so individualistic. We're encouraged to be independent and self-reliant. If you're a free spirit, if you're a nonconformist, if you're someone who isn't tied down, that's viewed as a good thing. If you're someone like that, um, Christians can adopt that thinking also as well. Some might say, well, you know, I don't really need the church. I don't need leadership. I don't need guidance. I can do fine on my own. But that's not true according to the Bible. We don't do well on our own. In Matthew 9, 36, we read that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Being a sheep without a shepherd is never a good thing in the Bible. That's what it looks like to be helpless. That's what elicits compassion from Jesus. You don't have anybody like that in your life. So Jesus sends help in the form of elders who shepherd people in local churches. That's where the sheep are gathered. So let's talk about the elders. That'll help us understand why God has given them to us. The elders, what are they to do? Well, well here's what they're to do. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So picture... A guy out in the field with sheep all around him, he's leaning on his staff, and he's, he's watching over them, right? Why is he doing that? One reason is because they could wander off and get into trouble. As Peter said to the church in chapter 2, you were straying like sheep, so he, he expects that people understand what sheep do. <laughs> sheep stray, <laughs> And he says to them in chapter 2, you were like that, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He's picking up language from Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So we have to see ourselves that way. We have to see ourselves as prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, as the hymn says. We have to see ourselves that way or we're never going to understand what shepherds are for. We can stray, we can, we can get off course, we can believe crazy things and do crazy things, and we need somebody in our life to help us back return to the shepherd and overseer of our souls and not drift away from the hope of the gospel. Um, I've been having a conversation with a man who was once very solid in his beliefs. He was raised in a Christian home. He went to a Christian university. He would say that Christ is my Savior. 
but he no longer believes that Jesus bore God's wrath on the cross for his sins. He has a different idea now about what happened on the cross. He's straying. He's starting to sound like the world more and more. He's losing the gospel. That's what it looks like to stray. You might even physically be still present in the church, but in your heart, you're going somewhere else. And God says, I, I want to put people in your life to prevent that. And so that's why the elders have to have a specific burden for how people are doing spiritually. Uh, they have to ask questions like, how, how are the people doing with God? What are, what are they believing right now? What's, what's motivating their life? What, what's behind the fear? What's, what's behind the joy? Is it what it ought to be or is it not? The elders should be asking questions like that. Are people enjoying the good news of forgiveness of sin or are they under a cloud of burden and guilt? Those are the kind of things shepherds should be doing. And the main way pastors address those things is by explaining the Word of God, by bringing the Word of God to bear on our life. You look at the list of elder qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, they're all character traits except one. There's only one spiritual gift there that you must have able to teach, must be able to teach. Why? Because God's people need God's Word. God's people need to know God. God's people need to know His generosity to us through Jesus. That needs to be where our hope is. We need to know the true God, the source of our life. And so an elder has to be able to explain that and, and call forth for response, call for application, call for obedience to Christ. This is why Paul told Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. I guess that's all seasons. That's, every that's all the time. Be ready all the time. Why? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We are prone to wander. We are prone to letting our passions dictate our direction in life and not God, not Jesus Christ, not His will. We're prone the other way. We have passions. That seems right to me. I'm going to go that way. And we need God's Word to counter that, to bring us back to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And so shepherds have to be able to teach. They have to pay attention to themselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made them overseers. That's what Paul said to the elders of Ephesus in Acts 20. So friends, this is God's grace to us. This is God's way of making sure we don't face the world and its challenges all by ourselves. That we should have a constant voice of encouragement or correction or exhortation as meets the need. God wants us to have help for the journey through this world. He wants us to have spiritual shepherds who will speak and act on behalf of Jesus, the chief shepherd. That's one of the ways he loves us. That's why he's particular about 
how those shepherds do their job. He doesn't want just anybody doing that. He wants it to be done in a certain way, otherwise it won't reflect his heart for us. So let's see what he wants elders to do. Let's see what kind of people um, and what, what kind of things he wants those, those elders to do for his people. He goes on to list three temptations that befall elders or pastors, as they're most often called. And with each temptation is the godly opposite thing to do. Uh, these obviously apply most directly to pastors, but remember, they speak about God's heart for you, and there's something to pray for me and Dan about. So, yes, you're not directly being addressed here, but we are the ones that God wants to act this way. Pray that we will be this. Let's see the three temptations. First one is that pastors could do their job under compulsion. Under compulsion. Verse 2, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. So what does under compulsion means? mean? It means you, you do it not because you want to, but because you have to. You feel like you have no choice in the matter, that you've been forced into it somehow. Now, that might sound strange, a strange temptation for guys who at one time must have signed up for this voluntarily, because as Paul said, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So becoming an elder begins with desire for the work. You want to do it. And yet he's saying, don't do it under compulsion as if you are being forced into it. So how could it ever turn in, into being forced against your will to shepherd the people? Well, now that I've been a pastor for almost 22 years, I know how that can happen. <laughs> yes, I know very well how that can happen. And so does Dan. I'll give you just one example. I get a phone call or an email from someone in the church who wants to talk to me about something. They want to meet with me, but they don't say what it's about. So here's what goes through my mind. I'm thinking it's one of three things, none of which is good. Number one, they're leaving the church. I just know it. <laughs> uh, or number two, they're offended by something I did or said. Or three, there's a terrible situation going on in their life, and I'm not going to have a clue what to do with it. So it's got to be one of those things, I'm thinking, because nobody ever hides what the meeting is about when it's good news. It's always bad news. So I'm dreading this meeting. I don't want to do this, but I have no choice because I'm their pastor, and this is what pastors are supposed to do. Have the meeting. I'm doing it under compulsion, not because I want to, but because I have to. That's the temptation, anyway. And there are a lot of other things like that which make it hard to want to shepherd people. Peter says, don't do it that way. Don't do it under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. God wants the pastors to care for the church because they want to, because that reflects God's heart for the church. That's the nature of the gospel. 
If you read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, you don't see somebody who was forced into dying for our sins. You see someone who was determined to die for our sins. You see someone who was resolute. He set his face toward Jerusalem in Luke chapter 9. You don't see Jesus having a crisis. Should I? Should I not? I don't think it's worth it. No, maybe it's okay. You never see that. Even in the garden where he struggled, in the garden of Gethsemane, and he said, Father, if it's your will, remove this cup from me. That wasn't because he didn't want to die for our sins. It was because he didn't want to be separated from God. He didn't want to be forsaken. He had only known fellowship, pure fellowship with his Father all of his life, and he didn't want that to be broken, and he was agonizing over that. But he never turned away from wanting to die for our sins. He wasn't forced into it. He wanted to do it. He said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. That's willingly. Pastors are exhorted to do that, to model that for you, to be flesh and blood in your life modeling that kind of Jesus love for people. That's a high calling. But that's not always easy to do because pastors are sheep too. We're prone to wander. And one of the ways we're prone to wander is under compulsion, not willingly. So Dan and I can appreciate your prayers to resist that. Here's the second temptation Peter lists for pastors. It's to exercise oversight for shameful gain. For shameful gain. Verse 2, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. The word eagerly differs from willingly in this way. Willing shepherding is about doing it of your own volition. Not being forced into it. But eagerly is about doing, doing it with a strong emotional desire to take pleasure in doing it. And that eagerness, that emotional delight is something that Jesus displayed for us. Hebrews 12.2 says it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. The joy of rescuing his people and caring for them, and rescuing them from the enemy. He was joyful about that. He was full of joy. He had a strong emotional desire to do it. So what's the opposite of that in Peter's mind? It's to shepherd the flock for shameful gain. In other words, you don't take pleasure in serving the people. You take pleasure in the people serving you. You aren't in it to give to them, but to get from them. It's about selfish interest. It's not hard to picture what shameful gain could look like. So obviously the pastor who's stealing from the church offering, that'd be one example. Or maybe he's demanding an excessively high salary all out of proportion to what he actually has responsibility for. It could look like those things, but it could be less obvious. I think one way is a pastor might not want to bring, say, correction 
or exhortation to a church member because he's afraid they won't give anymore, especially if he knows that they're a good giver. He might sort of alter the way that he goes about talking to them to make sure he's got a salary. (laughs) Or because they have a mountain condo and he knows that they like to share that with people, so he wants to get in there with favoritism. That could be a way of serving for shameful gain. Favoritism can be an example of it. The temptation here is to direct things to your own benefit rather than for the benefit of the people you leave. It's very easy, I think, for a pastor, because he stands in front of people, because he's leading, to start to think, you know, I'm really something. And yeah, you should serve me. After all, I lead this thing. It's very easy for a pastor to start thinking that way. But God says, no, not that way. (laughs) Eagerly taking pleasure in serving, in giving yourself away, as opposed to receiving and and getting from people. It's a heart thing, ultimately. And again, this is God's way with us, right? (laughs) He gives. (laughs) He gives and He gives and He gives. I want to commend Dan for this as an example. It's obvious that Dan is not in it for the money. Because <laughs> he ain't getting nothing. <laughs> Nobody paid him to lead communion today or to pray for you or to study hard and to be preaching the next two weeks and counsel and do weddings. He doesn't get anything for that. He does it willingly and eagerly. And he never complains. He's got a full plate. He's working really hard right now. He's got a huge deadline coming up, but he's doing this because he loves you. Dan's a good example. So I just want to say thank you, brother. Yes, please. One more temptation Peter lists. It's to exercise oversight that is domineering over those in your charge domineering over those in your charge verse 3 not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock the niv translation has it as not lording it over those who are entrusted to your care so what is that about what exactly is lording it over people in the church if your pastor makes a decision that you don't agree with is that lording it over the church I've, I've been told that more than once. <laughs> um, you changed my idea. <laughs> You're lording it over the church. Well, now, hold on a minute. <laughs> hold on a minute. Is that really what we're talking about here? It can't be just about a disagreement with the direction that's taken. Because of verse 5, there the younger ones are told to be subject to the elders which, as we're going to see, at times it means going along with a decision that you don't necessarily agree with. But you submit to it, you yield, and you say, okay, I'll go along with it. So it can't be just about that. It can't be just about a disagreement on a direction. It has to be more than that. And I think there's a really good illustration of it in Acts chapter 19. Because this same word for domineering or lording is there in a different situation. Um, In Acts 19, there were these traveling Jewish exorcists who were trying to cast out demons by saying, 
I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So they had figured out that Paul seems to have a lot of success casting out demons by the name of Jesus. So let's try that out. <laughs> let's add that to our repertoire. So they're going around doing this. They come to a demon-possessed man, and they try this out on him. And here's what happened. The evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. That's what domineering looks like. That's the word that's being used. It's mastering, overpowering by force. It doesn't have to be physical force, as it was in that case, but it is about forcefully subduing people. In a church setting, I think it likely looks like a pastor who just gives orders and welcomes no input, who isn't open to correction or anybody else's ideas, a pastor that motivates by threats and consequences rather than by love. That's a real temptation for pastors. Because sometimes what seems like the easiest way to get things done is to just run over people. Uh, we can get impatient with having meetings, two-hour discussions, saturating something with prayer. Sometimes a pastor might just say, you know what, forget all that. Let's just do it my way. You know, I know you don't like it. I know you have a problem with it, but it doesn't matter. We're just going to do it this way. I think it's that kind of an attitude on and on, as a, as a way of leading a church. God has a different way. He wants pastors that are examples to the flock. That's the alternative. Not domineering, but being examples. The kind of pastors God wants you to have are the ones that are approachable. They're open to correction themselves. They will listen. It doesn't mean they're not decisive. It doesn't mean they're not bold. It doesn't mean that they don't set direction but it just means that you can trust these guys. You know you can say something. You know you can ask a question. You can make a suggestion. You know that you'll get a hearing. You know that they genuinely care. And this is what God is like. He actually has the authority to, to say, do as I say. <laughs> and he has given us commands. But how does he give us commands? He packages his commands in grace. He says, I know you can't just do as I say, <laughs> so I will give you my spirit <laughs> to help you, and I will forgive your failures. In fact, I have forgiven your failures, even the ones you haven't committed yet, because you're in Christ by faith. And you can talk to me. You can raise a question. You read the Psalms. They're full of questions, crying out to God, why this? Why that? I don't understand. I don't get it. God's not put off by that stuff. He expects that. He invites that. His ear is open to our cry. He's approachable. That's our God, and pastors have the privilege of communicating that grace and how they lead. Bold and decisive, but also approachable and trustworthy and full of grace. So, pray that Dan and I will embody those character qualities. God knows we need it. And also, I would say, pray that we'll keep verse 4 in mind as well. 
which says there's a, a reward for faithful pastors from the chief shepherd when he appears. It's called the unfading crown of glory. I don't know what that is, <laughs> but that sounds good to me. Unfading means it won't ever go away. It's eternal. It's a crown of glory, so that's, that's a big word. Glory is like, wow, <laughs> you, you open a present. Uh, like that great big box that Sarah Quintana had at her quinceanera party last night. A, I thought a person was going to jump out of it. That's how big it was. And you open and you go, wow, right? So God says, Dan and, and I have that laid up for us as faithful pastors. So we need to keep that in view. So pray that we won't get discouraged by daily stuff, but keep our eye on the, on the eternity. We would appreciate that from you. All right, let's, uh, let's turn from what Peter says to the elders to what he has to say to the others. Uh, if you're looking at your watch and you realize I've only cover, covered one point out of three, fear not, because these other two are very short. <laughs> Having addressed the elders, he turns to another group, which is the younger people. The younger people. Here's what he says to them in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. This is the fourth time in Peter's letter that we've seen this command to be subject to someone else. It means be submissive, recognize legitimate authority, and follow it. Yield to leadership. So in the earlier chapters, we're told we're to do that with the governing authorities. And we're told to do that with our employers. And then wives to husbands. And now, younger people be subject to the elders. You younger ones, yield to the leadership of the pastors. Now you might wonder why Peter addresses just the younger people here, because Everybody in the church has been entrusted to the care of the elders. Everybody, they're the overseers of everybody. So why not just go out to the whole church? Why does he single out the younger ones here to be subject to the elders? Well, I think it's because Peter knows a thing or two about the temptations of youthful zeal and ambition. After all, he was that way himself. So this letter, he's writing about 30 years later than when he walked with Jesus before the cross. So he's an older guy now, and he remembers when he was a younger guy. Remember what Peter was like as a younger guy? <laughs> so full of confidence. Always knowing what to do and ready to do it before thinking about it. He's a guy who, when Jesus said that he's going to go to Jerusalem and be killed, Peter says, God forbid it. This shall never happen to you. Rebuked Jesus. <laughs> I, I really would love to know what his response was after he said, get behind me, Satan. I'd love to see the expression on his face. Like, I wasn't expecting that. But that's what he was like. He was so full of zeal, but he never saw the, the big picture of things, just what was right in front of him. Um, I think he's talking about that with the younger, younger ones. There's a particular challenge with young people, and I think 15 to 25-ish, that's the uh, demographic that the book of Proverbs is directed at. You need wisdom, my son, so here's the wisdom. Uh, I think he's talking about that group particularly. 
And, and he knows you, that when you're in that group, when you're younger, you, you see some things, you've got energy, you've got ideas, you want things to happen, and, and you can get impatient with the church, impatient with the elders if they don't get excited about your ideas and what you're excited about. They might even say no. Worse, they may even ask you to do something else that you don't want to do. So what's the temptation? To not be subject. To not recognize them as somebody that God's put in your life to lead you to look after your spiritual health, to point out some things that you might have missed and maybe to redirect you. The temptation is to see all of that as a hindrance instead of as a help. Temptation is to say, well, you don't understand me, so I'll just have to go and do it my own way and do it someplace else. That's a real temptation, but it's one that God wants you to resist. Now, granted, elders make mistakes. <laughs> Our ideas are not infallible. Sometimes what we're thinking needs to change, and it's the young people who have to show us what needs to change. So we have to be intentional about investing in you younger guys and, and ladies and, and let, the li- let the young eagles fly. <laughs> We, ha- we have to be willing to do that, and, and sometimes we're too cautious. I, I plead guilty to being too cautious and not always operating by faith, um, not willing to change something. So I get that. That's, that's definitely a tendency. But God doesn't make any mistakes, and God has entrusted certain people to certain pastors. He has arranged this thing. And he's often more interested in the process than the end result. He's more interested in our character development than in what we produce because he is about forming Christ in us. And sometimes that means you run up against a wall and you've got to decide in that moment, am I going to yield or am I going to go do my own thing? That's the point at which character is developed. That's the point at which Christ is formed in us. Often And so those road bumps, those, those hindrances, those inefficiencies of the church are often God's way of forming Christ in us. Let's not be too quick to run away from that. Here's the last group Peter addresses. It's everyone. <laughs> Verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So that's for everyone, the elders, the younger people, and everybody else in the church. It's a call to humility. This isn't about having a lack of uh, activity or zeal or boldness, but it is about having a lack of self. It's about a lack of self-preoccupation and self-importance. I like how Tim Keller talks about humility. He says, it's not that you think more highly of yourself or even that you think more lowly of yourself or or think less of yourself. It's that you think about yourself less. I like that description. You think about yourself less. That's humility. Humility is not being preoccupied with my rights, my ideas, my way, what's coming to me. Humility is preoccupied with serving other people. And thinking about other people. It's Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, 
But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This is what Peter's exhorting everybody to do. He's just echoing what Paul said. Now, I don't think it's wrong to ask God to help you to be humble. Sometimes when I'm praying with people, I hear that. Sometimes I do that. God, help me to be humble or give me humility. I don't think that's wrong because we need God for everything. But remember that humility is something we're commanded to put on. (laughs) Clothe yourselves with it. (laughs) So don't just ask for it, but do it. (laughs) Practice it. Clothe yourself with humility. Actively put to death pride. Humility isn't going to just appear in your life one day out of nowhere. We have to cultivate it. And you have plenty of chances to do that in the church. When things don't go your way, when there is a disagreement, when you've been wronged, it's especially in those times when humility is required It's especially then when you have to ask yourself, what is in the other person's interest right now? Instead of asking, what's in my best interest right now? I think Peter tells this to everybody because humility is like oil in the engine of the church. With an engine, as long as you keep the oil level at the right amount and you change it out about every 3,000 miles... The engine does just fine, but if you let the oil go down, get low, things start to heat up. If you let the, the oil run out altogether, the engine will stop completely. The church is like that. Where there's a lot of humility, we can survive just about anything. It runs pretty well. But when there's lack of humility, things start to heat up. People get angry or easily offended quick to judge, there's conflict and division. And if, if humility goes out the window completely, the whole church falls apart. This is probably what Peter has in mind when he says God opposes the proud. If you want to have your own way, if you want to put your own interests ahead of everybody else's, God says, all right, have it your way. Let's see how that works out. You're not going to like it. But how wonderful is the promise that God gives grace to the humble. Pride limits our experience of the grace of God, whereas humility actually increases it. Let me just close with this. Just to remind you that God is for you, friends. Jesus didn't purchase you with his blood only to leave you to fend for yourself in the world. He remains your good shepherd. And one of the ways that he does it is by giving you shepherds in a church which, in which you can be shepherded. So if you haven't committed to a church, I urge you to do that. Don't miss out on his gift of elders and of the church. If you are committed to a church, pray for your pastors. We need that. Be patient if you're young, especially. And all of us, let's put on humility so that we can experience the grace of God in fuller measure. And he wants us to have all this because, after all, we still have a journey ahead of us with many challenges. But he's given us what we need for the journey.
So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this setting that we're in right now. Um, we're in the sphere of what you wanted for our good. And so, Lord, pour out your good upon us. Take this word that's been sowed in our hearts this morning and make it bear fruit. We thank you that your heart for us is, is this way. Um, you came willingly, eagerly to rescue us from our sins. You're with us all the way through the end. And you give grace. So thank you for that. Prosper your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.